0: Welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast, the podcast where we interview Jewish philosophers and educators on various topics in Jewish philosophy, theology, and Jewish thought. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit www.jewishphilosophypodcast.com for more information. Enjoy! Rabbi Burton, welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. The title of this podcast is Knowing an Unknowable God. Torah versus Prophets, with Rabbi Burton. So to begin, could you tell us a bit about how you became involved in Jewish philosophy and Jewish
1: thought? My main interest in Jewish thought actually came through Tanakh, which is not the typical course. I studied Tanakh B'in and I uh, in depth, and I give a weekly lecture on that. And um, I found that through studying the Bible, really looking deeply into the Bible and sort of uncoding it, trying to decode it, You can really find um, very deep ideas that are usually more familiar from the domain of Jewish philosophy. So that's my personal interest was more through the Bible itself. I also uh, love reading and studying the classics of Jewish philosophy, Maimonides, Sadigin, Kuzri, among others. But my own passion and real interest is sort of developing it from its source, which is, of course, the Bible.
0: Okay, perfect. So maybe we can get straight into the, the first question. So what exactly is the difference between the Torah and the prophets uh, regarding the significance of the Korbanot? I know that's a, a theme you've developed uh, significantly. How does the Torah make us think about the Korbanot, the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices?
1: And how does the naviim, how do the prophets make us think about that? Right. So this is one of these major problems that has been recognized various forms for at least a thousand years. Maimonides writes about this problem that basically the problem is, to, to describe it in brief, of course, the Torah talks about the laws of sacrifices, and it's extremely important in the Torah. One of the five books, Vayikra Leviticus, is uh, basically dedicated to the details of the sacrificial cult, of the rituals in the temple. So it, it, it's clearly of supreme importance to the Torah, and supreme importance to the law. And then when you read the prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, they consistently downplay the significance of sacrifices. And if they would merely downplay the significance of sacrifices, then perhaps one could suggest that, okay, maybe they're not as important as other aspects of, of the Torah. But the prophets say in in very say very clearly that God doesn't want sacrifices. Really what he wants is justice, and righteousness. Micha says it the most starkly in a way. He says, what does God wish from you but for doing kindness, doing justice, and walking humbly with God? Now that but for, he's basically saying, God doesn't desire sacrifices. And that's a, a, an open contradiction to the Torah. So this is a question that... Um, Maimonides states it very clearly. He says that everyone that he's heard and, and read has had this problem. How could the prophets say that sacrifices are not important? And besides Maimonides, um, Avraham Daud addresses it. Yehuda Levi and the Sefer Kuzari addresses this problem. And their general approach is basically to say that the prophets mean to sort of establish a hierarchy of what's more important. And not that the prophets insist that sacrifices aren't important, but that's not what the Torah is really about. That's not what God really wants. The most important thing is the um, fundamental level of, of justice and kindness. And they each say that in different ways. And that's a study in their own thought, in Maimonides' thought, as opposed to the Kuzari and opposed to Avram ibn Da'ud. You can look at the nuances to how they approach the question. And they each say more or less that idea, but in different forms, depending on their within their theory, within their way of thinking. But I personally have found that, I found these answers sort of inadequate because like I said before, the prophets don't merely say sacrifices are not so important. They basically say in so many words that God doesn't want sacrifices. And um, to put it as Hosea puts it, and this, this passage to me is key to understanding sort of where I get the, get to the answer from, he says, God prefers knowledge of God. Knowing God is preferred over sacrifices. Now, knowing God is a major theme in the prophets. Knowing God means understanding God's ways and then emulating them, And which is what prophets are all about. They teach us about God's kindness. They teach us about what God is up to, and they encourage us to be like him. Jeremiah put it the, the most dramatically. He says, There's nothing to be proud of. Let the wise man not be proud of his wisdom. Let the wealthy man not be proud of his wealth. The only thing a person can be proud of is knowledge of God. Because I am Hashem who does righteousness, kindness, and justice in the earth. Meaning what the prophet is saying, which Jeremiah is saying, is that the only thing, and this is something worth thinking about. I mean, here's a prophet insisting that there's only one thing in the world that's worth being proud of. That's an interesting statement there. You know, you have to think about that. What he's saying is, nothing else is worth anything but for knowing God. And what that means is basically that, that well, God and his actions is the only game in town. And if you're doing anything else, then you're just, you just don't get it. You just, you're just living a fantasy. So there's nothing else worth being, nothing really worth anything besides for that. So all they talk about is knowledge of God, knowledge of God, knowing what God is up to, and therefore emulating him, which basically you could say, that means knowing the nature, the fundamental nature of reality of what is, because since we believe that, the world was created by God. If you understand God and how he manifests through reality, that means you understand everything. So basically the prophets say, you know what God wants? He wants you to be a full person knowing who knows everything, basically omniscient. You could say, you know everything because you know God and he you knows his actions and you understand what he's up to. And then you follow in his ways and you do as he does. And then they insist that, okay, that's what God wants. And he doesn't want sacrifices, which basically is a way of saying he doesn't want worship. And they don't, like I said, they don't just say, okay, this is more important. They're completely shifting what religion is about. Because they're saying religion is not about worship and God doesn't want worship. God just wants you to be like Him. Which, if you think about it, makes perfect sense. I mean, why would God want us to worship Him? What does He get from worship? You know, you can think about God as what, he, what God does as being good and being perfect. And what follows from that is that we too, should do as God does. And that makes perfect sense. And that's a a very reasonable religion. And that's sort of what the prophets put forward, that we have to look at God and look at his actions and understand them. If you misunderstand them, it's not going to help you. But if you are able to understand truly what God is doing, and that's what they call Das Hashem, the knowledge of God, then you have a model and you know how to live. And that's the beginning. That's the Aleph Titaf. That's the A to Z of religion in the prophets. And God doesn't want you to worship him. God doesn't want you to to just do the senseless kind of actions of slaughtering animals in his favor. So the, what I found sort of deficient in, in, in the way that the um, the earlier commentators and, and thinkers dealt with this problem is that they basically said that, okay, the prophets don't really mean exactly what they're saying. And they sort of are just trying to make a point. And for my studying the Bible, I basically am hyper literal in a way when I study it, which is I really... You know, it's interesting how hyperliteralism sort of gets you to sometimes a much deeper meaning than the surface meaning. Medrash, which really means to, to get to the bottom of the text, what and what the sages did in the Talmud and, and the Medrashim, really comes from being assuming that everything must be absolutely literal. Sometimes people think that you know, shot or a surface, there's a surface level, and that's like the literal meaning, and then there's okay, the, you know, deeper meaning is like sort of making things up or just finding things that aren't there, but it's really the opposite. Shad, or surface level, is saying, okay, let's smooth it over. Let's just get the message. And uh, medrash, or really looking at and trying to find a deeper meaning, is sometimes often comes from really saying, no, every single word has to mean exactly what it says. So when I see the prophet saying, God doesn't want anything but for doing kindness, I say, well, look, he says that. So how could a prophet say that? How could they contradict the the Torah and and the significance of prophets? So that's the question. So you mentioned before, I mean, that's really
0: fascinating, but the the problem here. (laughs) But you mentioned before that other thinkers have, have dealt with this problem, um, not sufficiently, maybe. Could you just give us a brief overview of, on this podcast, we like, um, Maimonides, as I'm sure you, you do yourself as well. Could you just bring, a, give us a bit of a background of Maimonides' view of, um, Corbanot, of sacrifices? Cause I know that's a very famous and very novel understanding, which is our listeners might like to hear. And maybe you could, could tell you us know. how you see this as problematic based on your, on your question.
1: Yeah, Maimonides is beloved by all students of uh, of Judaism and all thinkers, all true, uh, honest thinkers can love Maimonides. And by the way, just a caveat when it comes to Maimonides, especially the God for the perplexed, the answer is usually not right there in black and white. You have to, as he writes explicitly in his introduction, that if you want to understand the God for the perplexed, you have to put things together. You have to read one chapter in light of the other chapter. And this is a very good example of that because uh, there's a lot of more nuance there than people say, but so let me present his his opinion in brief. Maimonides says that the, pur- the purpose of sacrificial worship is that um, it was a method, it was a method that people, the, the Jewish nation at the time that they received the Torah, it was a method of worship that the, that the world was accustomed to. And specifically, of course, before the, the revelation of monotheism or the discovery of monotheism maybe is how Maimonides would put it um this was the method of worship of pagan worship and the Torah took this practice this ritual and instead of instead of just saying okay worship God with your mind or with justice the ways that are truly important the Torah took this method of practice and said, okay we're going to use that method that, that method of worship that was used for pagan worship, and it's going to be transferred to worshiping Hashem, the one God. So Imani says two different things there, basically. He says that on the one hand, he says that, okay, it was a method of worship, and you can't come tell people who are used to worshiping in a certain way. You can't come and tell them, drop that method of worship and start worshiping God in a completely different way. He says, imagine a prophet will come today and say, don't fast and don't pray, just worship God by meditating. Since we're not, even if that might be more ideal, perhaps, but since we're used to worshiping God in a certain way, we, we're not capable of, of dropping our old way, ways of being. So that's one thing Maimonides says. And the other thing he says is that since they, they actually um, deified animals, many of the idolaters worshipped animals, so by sacrificing animals to God, we are thereby uprooting uh, the idea of, of, of the pagan worship to the animals. So those are two elements that says. And regarding the Pasuk, the, the verses that downplay sacrificial worship, Imani says, well, the point is that, that sacrificial worship is not, the, is not the end goal. It doesn't bring you towards the end goal of the Torah. The end goal of the Torah is belief, is proper belief. And the 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 sacrificial rituals are only necessary as a means to get there, but they're not the purpose of the Torah. And that's what the prophets mean to say when they're downplaying it. So that, in other words, a people who, as Maimonides says, a people who question God's existence, but then still bring sacrifices are hypocritical. And that's the prophet's point that here, you guys are not getting to the point of sacrifices, which was just to wean you off idolatry and to the service of God. And, and, but yet you insist on, on keeping all the laws of the the details of the sacrificial worship. So that's what he says. But like I said, I, I, I'm as a hyper literal reader of the Bible. I say, well, Micha says, God wants nothing but for that. And, but but, but that being um, kindness and justice. That's what the prophet Micha says. The prophet Oshea says, I wanted kindness and not sacrifices. I prefer knowledge of God to olos to, to, to burnt offerings. So again, that seems to me that if the prophet says, God is saying, I want this and not that. Right, I want kindness and not sacrifice. He didn't say I prefer kindness to sacrifice or that's more ideal. He said that's what I want, and that flies in the face of the Torah and its insistence on the importance of the sacrifices. So let me give a bit of a summary there for our listeners. I think there's been
0: loads of fascinating ideas. So um, maybe let's start with the understanding that we 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 find difficult. So we so so we find Maimonides' understanding difficult. What was Maimonides' understanding? His understanding was that the offerings, the korbanot, didn't necessarily have an intrinsic purpose. They weren't intrinsically valuable um, for their own means, but they were a way of sort of weaning the Jewish people off uh, previously problematically held notions of idol worship and other things. So they came into the Jewish religion, came into monotheism, being used to having certain ideas and having certain uh, ways of worship. And God really wanted Hashem really wanted um, sacrifice the sacrificial service to eventually end, but as a way of weaning them off this practice of sacrificing to the wrong gods, He said, "Well, let's sacrifice to the right God, right, and to myself." And that's a way of taking the the um, Jewish people off sacrifices. But again, the main point was knowledge of uh, was belief belief in in the one God. Now the problem that 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 you're saying with Mahundis, which is really is actually striking thinking about it, that the, the, the prophets don't just say that sacrifices are not that important. There's really other things that are important. They're saying they're not important at all. There's really um uh, following God's ways and knowledge of God, which is which is we'll maybe hear about soon, is equated with. Knowledge of God is equated with following his ways. That is it. There is no other Need for sacrifices, whether as an instrumental, whether as an instrumental purpose for something else, there is no need of them at all. So that's where I think we're 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 holding right now, and maybe we can sort of hear your, you know, your, your take on this. How do you understand um, Korbanot themselves?
1: Right. I just want to comment on one thing you said about uh, according to Imanides, the end game is that there that there shouldn't be uh, offerings brought to Hashem, and the, that's the ultimate that's the ultimate goal or maybe I shouldn't say gold, but the ultimate, eventually sacrificial worship should cease. The Rambam doesn't say, Maimonides doesn't say that explicitly. People do read that into Maimonides, but of course Maimonides himself wrote his code of Jewish law, where it's very clear that he understands that when the Messiah is going to come, he he will rebuild the temple and we will once again bring the offerings to Hashem. So he doesn't say that, and that's a very interesting subject right there about how Maimonides understands the reasons for commandments and whether If a reason is this kind of reason, basically to wean us off of idolatry, and Maimonides makes the point that hey, it worked because we don't we're no longer pagans. So it almost suggests that, as you said, almost suggests that we don't need sacrifices anymore, which maybe actually makes sense because we haven't been bringing sacrifices for the last two thousand years, right? But on the other hand, it's also very clear that Maimonides does not believe that the law changes. And in fact, our obligation as a mitzvah, if we had the opportunity to bring the offerings in the temple, we would do so. So that's a different subject there. You know, Although it would seem to follow from Maimonides' opinion that eventually the sacrificial worship should cease. Maimonides did not, does not hold that way. So I just wanted to make that point. And now, so let me get to um, how I think about it. So it's basically, as you made the point, this the, the prophets talk about knowledge of God and say, that's it. And what struck me when I was thinking about this problem, about how to, how to reconcile or how to understand this contradiction, let's say, what struck me is that there's actually a, a much more fundamental contradiction between the prophets and the Torah, which is that the prophets consistently talk about knowledge of God, understanding God, understanding Hashem, understanding His ways. Tens of times you have that idea throughout the, the prophetic writings. And like I said before, according to the prophet Jeremiah, that is the only thing worth, worth anything. is to understand God. It's a very reasonable proposition. Because if you understand God, and you, that means you understand the world, that means you understand your place in it. You know what's good and you know what's right. And it struck me one day that the Torah never encourages us to know God. Prophets talk about it. Know God. The Adata is Hashem, says Hosea. You shall know Hashem. Study Hashem. That's they want you to do. They want you to to think about Hashem and study Him. And the Torah talks about loving God, talks about fearing God, even talks about knowing that Hashem is God. But it doesn't tell you ever know God, know Hashem, get to know Him. So to me, that was a clue because then I say, well, actually, maybe there's no contradiction here, or that we're looking in the wrong place for the, we're looking at the wrong place to understand the contradiction. Because while Oshea says the knowledge of God is preferred to burnt offerings. Right, So that seems to be a contradiction to the Torah that, that encourages us to bring those burnt offerings. Well, actually, the Torah never talks about knowing God. So maybe that's where we have to look to see, to see the difference. That was my first clue. And uh, let me give you the idea in a nutshell, and then I guess we, could, we can unpack it. There's this passage in um, Exodus, which to me contains the key to understanding this whole, this whole question. Moses requested from God, knowledge of God. He asked God, I want to know you. Show me your glory, teach me your ways, and I will know you. And God's response, there's a lot happening there, but part of the response is, you can't see my face, God said to Moses, for no man shall see me and live. So basically Moses is told there, see, that's the place in the Torah where we actually the Torah does discuss the possibility of knowing Hashem, where Moshe asked, Moses asked Hashem, can I know you? And the answer was, no, it's impossible. it's impossible to have knowledge of God. It's impossible to see God. So if you want to know why in the Torah it never talks about knowing Hashem, well, that's the place to look. It does. Moses requested from Hashem the possibility of absolute knowledge of God and seeing God. And he was told that those things are impossible. So now let's focus on that. So here we have Moses saying, or the Torah of Moses, presenting us with this idea that it's impossible to know God and it's impossible to see God. And then the prophets tell us, no God, no God. And in fact, the prophets also say that they see God. Isaiah says, I saw Hashem. And this contradiction is asked by the Talmud. How could Isaiah say, I I beheld God, I saw God? If the Torah says it's impossible to see God, in fact, the Talmud says that that the Prophet Isaiah was put to death by, by the wicked King Manasseh for for this crime of, or at least that's what the king claimed, for contradicting the Torah of Moses. The Torah says you can't see God, and here you come along and you say you do see God, among other crimes. So the Talmud continues and says, okay, well, what's the answer to this contradiction? So let me just before I go into that, I just want to show, I just want to pull it together and show you where we're going here. We started with the contradiction between the Torah and the prophets regarding the importance of of sacrifices. Apparently, we also showed that that hinges on the ability to know God because it's it's the knowledge of God, which the prophets are always um, encouraging in lieu of bringing offerings to God, right? And the story in the Torah that tells us about knowledge of God tells us that Moshe asked to know God and to see God, and that was declined. So then this then is the crux of the issue, that contradiction where the prophets do, in fact talk about seeing God, and of course, loosely stated, seeing God and knowing God can go together. If you see him, you behold him, you understand him, you can relate to him. So this to me is where we have to look to understand the difference. and the, the Talmud answers is very fascinating thing, the Talmud says that the prophets see God through an espacularia, which means a, a a glass that is um blurred. And basically what it's saying, and while Moses says, I cannot see God because he saw, he looked through a clear glass. Which means that what the, what the Talmud is saying is that the prophet's method of, of prophecy, the way they beheld anything, was with some, was wasn't a blurry way, we can say, or a lower level of sight. And with that level of sight, says the Talmud, they can consider that they saw God too. But Moses, who sees things with that clarity, with a complete clarity, knows that he's not seeing God. And Rashi says there on that passage of the Talmud, says they thought they saw God, but they didn't. Shocking thing to say. But I want to explain to you what that means. Basically, what the Talmud is telling us is that there are two levels of, of knowledge or two levels of sight. And it can be true that one can see God and one cannot see God, depending on what you mean by seeing. If you're talking about the absolute perfect seeing, if that's what you mean when you say seeing, then you can't see God. If you mean something lower than that, then you can't see God, and I think I think of a great example of just to explain what that means. You know, if something is very fuzzy in your in your sight, something let's say is very small, so you can only you could just you could see that something's there, but you can't see the out, you can't see the very specifics of what you're seeing. So, would you call that sight or not? Well, it depends on what what you're used to, right? Someone who has very good eyesight, if some, if it's very dark and he only sees the outline of something, he might not even call that sight. The same way, if your eyes are closed, you can sense if it's light in the room or not. Are you seeing? Right? It's a fair question. Sort of depends what you call sight. So that's basically what the Talmud is saying. The same exact word. Moses says, I can't see God. And the prophets say, I do see God. The same exact word can mean something, some two different things for two different people. And the same thing applies in the same context. You have to remember that Moshe asked to see God and to know God. And he was told, No, you can't. So the prophets talk about knowledge of God. So there's our clue. Well, it depends what knowledge means. There are two approaches to knowledge there's the mosaic approach to knowledge which we can call that perfect knowledge and perfect knowledge cannot be applied to God. And then there's the prophetic approach approach to knowledge or, and sight, which can absolutely be applied to God.
0: So that's really interesting. So I think I'm starting to get the general picture of the, of the answer. Um, but what I'm just thinking about at the moment is that why, if you see more clearly, if Moses just want to get that point clear, maybe for our listeners, and um, if you, Moses could see clearer, doesn't that lead to greater knowledge? Why it does is seeing clearer, being able to see so through an asperclarius mirror, a clear, 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 clear glass. Why is that necessarily mm-hmm. a reason to, to downplay his his knowledge of God? To get that point maybe a bit clearer,
1: right? So let's say imagine a person who only has very fuzzy sense perception of anything, never has any very clear sense perception, right? So when he has some sort of fuzzy sense perception of Whatever it may be—a light, a sound, a touch—he would say, "I feel it. I feel it. I smell it. I hear it." Okay, because that's his threshold of 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 sense sensory perception is very low. Someone who's used to a a level of clarity—if there's some item or some sense perception which doesn't rise to that level—then for him that wouldn't be sight. He would know that that's actually not sight. It's actually something below sight, maybe related to sight, but not quite sight, right? The same way I'm going back to my example before, I mean, there is a certain threshold of, of optic perception that below that we wouldn't call sight. I mean, not to be too focused on the, on, you know, the semantics here, but that's that's a true point. That not every, I think not every optical perception, not every photon hitting your eye and and making some sort of impression on your eye. Would you call sight? Like I said, if your eyes are closed, i am closed my eyes now. I still know it's light outside, but I wouldn't call that sight. So the person, but let's say a person who, um, who doesn't have more than, than that kind of perception would call that sight. I mean, a good example, you know, you could use, let's say Plato's cave as an example of this. If someone's living in Plato's cave and all he sees are shadows, then, um, he might call that seeing something because that's all he knows of. But if someone is aware of the fact that there's something casting the shadow and that you can't see, he would say, we're not seeing, we're not seeing the thing. Right. That's a okay.
0: nice example. So I, I think the point is is getting definitely very clearer. Um, does that mean I'm understanding it less if it's getting clearer? So uh, <laughs> so um, so um, the the basic point is is that Moses, because he realised what yes. true knowledge of God true was actually of consisted, of, consisted of, of, therefore when he, even though he may be sort of the same level as the prophets, he knew that wasn't really called seeing, right? That's the point. Right. Whereas the prophets exactly. who they didn't necessarily have the ability to even know what they were um, uh, to to even have an idea of what true knowledge of God would consist of, they thought that they were seeing God when they were when they were um seeing God and when they were um understanding God. Because okay, that's excellent. So how does that relate to the, right. the sacrifices? Yeah.
1: Right. So let me get to that, but I want to just make it very clear that when we say they thought they were seeing, the point is then that's what seeing means for them. Okay? It's not that like they made a mistake and they misapplied the word the word itself of seeing and the word itself of knowledge sort of depends on what you're capable of okay i'm going to try to explain um i think you're the epistemologist in the room okay. so i'm not going to wade too much into the uh epistemology here mainly because i feel that i find that when you're studying the bible although you can usually you can often use the categories developed through philosophy to um to understand these themes certainly that's true but I find that it takes away from the force of the message when you try to fit, that, fit it in neatly into categories from philosophy. So I'm going to avoid that. Additionally, I'm not expert in, in those matters. But here's a way to think about it. What's knowledge? And then, relatedly, what's seeing something? Is it knowing the thing in itself? Or is it knowing the effects it has on you? Right? Mm-hmm. Debated for eternity, this, this issue. Now, that's a way to look at this, which I think is pretty fair but it might not capture the whole thing, but I think it's a way to think about this. For Moses, knowledge meant to know the thing in and of itself. And then sight. See, of course, let's just be clear here. No one can see God because God doesn't is not corporeal. So photons don't bounce off him. So when we talk about seeing God, we mean perceiving God or seeing him in the mind, in an image in the mind, which is ultimately a path to perception. For Moses to see God or to perceive God or to know God would mean to know God in and of itself himself. And that is, in fact, impossible. So Moses is left with ignorance. The prophet's perception and knowledge is understanding God's actions, understanding what God does to us, our experience of God. And that you can have in, total, in totality. You can have 100% knowledge, say the prophets. That's, of course, if you're a prophet, but they encourage everyone to try to reach that level. You can have 100% knowledge of the ramifications of God of what God does, of how we experience God. And if that's what knowledge is for you, then you know everything. You literally know everything. It's not that you're mistaken. You know everything there is to know because the idea of seeing past your subjective experience of something and and getting to the thing itself is just not part of how they think. So therefore, it's not what knowledge means for them and it's not what sight means for them.
0: But how do we know that there's a correlation, just because you brought up that metaphor, how do we know that there's a correlation between the thing in of itself um and the effects i mean one of the main problems with that that way of thinking in epistemology is that where is the connection necessarily between the um how do we know that the effects of something is a true reflection of the nature of the thing itself how are we really getting closer to it at all we're only getting close to its effect maybe we're not at all getting close to its um essence is that is that the point maybe that we're actually not getting anywhere close to the essence at all we are only getting close to the effect is that the point
1: that may be the point. Um, and therefore, perfect knowledge is, in fact, blocked. And if you're too high, too aware of that, and you think about that too much, then you're going to recognize that we're ultimately very ignorant. And that's going to bring us soon, we'll understand how that ties into offerings. Right. But um, and also, of course, now when we're applying this problem to God, right. it's compounded because we're talking about, now we're not just talking about uh, a material item, which we can analyze, but we're talking about a conceptual item, which is hard enough to conceptualize to begin with. And then to talk about you know, understanding its essence and seeing whether its actions arise from its essence and how they do, of course we're very far in in, in very abstruse and difficult kind of thinking for sure so let's tie it back to um the carbonate. Yes, yes. How does this have anything to do with sacrificial worship, so it has everything to do with it, and here's why see the debate over here, and again I'm using debate loosely, of course because there is no disagreement, there are two ways of looking at it because Moses. As the, as the Bible says, there will never be a prophet like Moses again. So Moses and the, is, is operating in, in a world of his own. So there's Moses and there's everyone else, okay? And the way we just described it, everyone else thinks about knowledge and sight as subjective experience. And if that's what sight is and that's what knowledge is, say the prophets, then we live in a, a world where we can have perfect knowledge. And let's just be clear, when I say perfect knowledge, of course, I don't mean you can know, you know, I don't mean you're going to be a supercomputer. I mean, you're going to know what's important to know. You're going to understand what God is up to, what this world is all about. You're going to know the ways of God. You're going to see his kindness and justice and righteousness. Where will you learn that from? It's basically natural law. You'll learn it from observing reality. Reality is God's ways. And the prophets tell us to observe reality and learn from it and know God, and you will know everything. And you'll be a proud person because that's what Jeremiah says, the only thing to be proud of is that because you can be a knowledgeable person who actually understands the reality and therefore his place in it. And that's amazing. But what if there's a superior kind of knowledge, which is Moses' way of thinking, which is engaged in the things as they are, the thing in and of itself. And then, as you pointed out, and then how do, how do things derive from the thing in and of itself? If that's where your mind is, then ultimately you're facing a, a great black ignorance, a great void, a great dark void of ignorance. Because, you know, if you're too or much aware of the fact that, um, all subjective knowledge is merely that, then you're basically saying, then you walk around saying, I know nothing. Okay. So now forget about, you know, a lot of times when people think about, you know, what is Judaism? What is the Torah? We, start, we sort of put things backwards because we sort of start with the text or we start with the Torah. But really, Torah starts with humans. I mean, you have to start with reality. What is reality, according to the Torah? And, and the Torah is responding or dealing with reality. First thing the Torah t- tells us is God created the world. So what's the world? What is thought? What is you? What is a human being? That's where the divide is here between the Torah and the Prophets. Because if a human being is someone who has knowledge, if that's what it means to be human, then we know how we have to live. Consistent with our knowledge, which is consistent with God. But if what it means, but if there's a superhuman who's such a superhuman that he knows that he doesn't know, then that becomes an extremely important part of life. Actually becomes the most important thing. Because everything else is is living in from his perspective, from Moses' perspective, right? Any other way of living is false. It's, it's you're, you're deluding yourself into thinking that you know. What does it have to do with sacrifice? It's very simple. What should we do with God? Well, it depends. If we can know God, and remember, we're talking about knowing God fully. Prophets have no caveats in the knowledge of God. They say you can know God, you can know Hashem. From their perspective, you can know Him, you can see Him. You don't worship that which you know. You worship that which you can see. You study, you understand, you learn from that which you can know, and you learn from that which you can see, and you emulate. Worship, the biblical mode of worship, which has the law at its center and sacrifices specifically. Sacrifice is the ultimate kind of law and it's the ultimate kind of worship. The purpose of that is the recognition of the fact that there is a higher being. The way the prophets put it, we have to be like God. So, in a certain sense, there is no higher being. There's a higher being in the sense that we have the the ideal. We can see the ideal, and we can know what we have to be. But we don't have to submit ourselves or, or lower ourselves through through this kind of um, this kind of worship. That's rec- that that's there to 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 symbolize the fact that there's something higher than us. We have to learn from it. No need for worship in the prophetic outlook. While in the Torah outlook, worship is the, is the single most important thing. So that's one element of sacrifices. And then on a deeper level, um, the idea of sacrifices, it's essentially a symbolic suicide. Because bringing a sacrifice, Nachmanides says and others, and that can be shown also from the Bible, the idea of bringing a sacrifice is that a person is sacrificing himself symbolically. And the idea of, of self-sacrifice makes perfect sense if you basically say, I know nothing. I know nothing. I have no I, essentially, according to the Torah, the deepest message of the Torah is that all human values are suspect, including the most basic human value then, which is your own life. And that's why sacrifice is at the core of the Torah message, because the most important thing for the torah, according to Moses from Moses' perspective, is that we don't know, we don't understand, we don't fully understand God we don't, and therefore we don't fully understand what he's up to, and therefore we can't understand as humans. What is right and what is wrong? Of course, there can be a divine law revelation, something from the outside. But we can't be full humans. And if we can't be full humans, that's a very important point to remember. And therefore, we have to engage in this sacrificial, this symbolic suicide, so to speak. While from the prophetic perspective, our job is to be full and complete humans. And then symbolically killing ourselves is the worst thing we can do. Because we can be proud, right? See, it's a very interesting thing. Jeremiah says there's something to be proud of. There is something to be proud of in this world. While Moses... The Bible calls him the, the most humble of all humans. And that's to me, is the reason why. Because, okay, why was Moses so humble? Not because he wasn't rich and not because he wasn't strong. Everyone knows that. that every wise man knows that's not a reason to be proud. But there is one thing a person could be proud of, which is knowledge of God. But Moses says, I have got past that. I know that that's a mirage. So he's the most humble. And that's why he initiates he, the one who brought us the law with sacrifices at its center.
0: Well, that's really fascinating. Um, just one thing that came to mind is why are we focusing on sacrifice? Doesn't this seem to be a good reason to yes. to question the purpose of the whole service, the whole of the um, commandments themselves, from this prophetic view? Um, well, it's very understandable coming from a mosaic view that we are, we don't understand Hashem, we don't understand God, we don't understand his essence, so we have to follow what he says. We need to do the mitzvahs, the mitzvot, the commandments, whether we understand them or not. But from a prophetic perspective, the way you're presenting it, it seems to be about us, about the way, you know, natural law, as you said, you know, using human reason and human understanding to um, relate to God's effects, as it were, which is us. So why do we need to do mitzvot at all then on a prophetic understanding?
1: Yeah, so there is an anti-nominalism undertone in the prophets, um, stated mostly in the context of sacrifices. And as I said, that's because I think sacrifices are at the core and they represent the concept of law because they're the most absolute law. See, when the Torah says don't steal, a prophet as a prophet, meaning someone who puts humans at the center and and the human mind at the center of, of reality, can get behind that. So there are, although I agree with you, I very much agree with you, that the law, qua law, is definitely a Mosaic construct. And the idea that prophets cannot, um, cannot make a new law, I understand that as reflecting exactly this point, prophets are not about law. See, the Talmud teaches us that the law ends with Moshe, with the Bible, with the five work five books of the Bible itself, of, of the Chumash. The prophets that followed, came after Moses, cannot add laws to the Torah. 613 mitzvot, and that's it. And that's exactly how I understand it, that the prophets are not, are, in a certain sense, the prophetic ideal is antithetical to the concept of law. Exactly as you're saying. It's expressed specifically through, through this opposition to offerings because that's the epitome of law because it's so senseless. And, um, and like I said, and it's because it's symbolic of really destroying the self and submitting, submitting to a higher power. But there is a certain, there is a certain antinomism in, in the prophets in general. So now I just want to make it very clear. See, lots of people, I know some people sometimes are puzzled about this. Like, so wait, what are you really saying? Like, who's right? You know, so how do you resolve the contradiction? But the answer is, it's not really a contradiction. These are both true. The question is, what is a human? And therefore, what is the Torah? What does the Torah have to teach us as a human being? And the answer is, well, the answer is actually, there's two answers. All human beings, except for one supreme fellow, who's called the man of God, that's Moses, all human beings have their perception of God. And of course the prophets are not going to affirm the message of Moses. It's almost like, of course this contradiction is dear. That's the point. They're doing something else. That's why there's the five books of Moses and the prophets. It's a very different endeavor. And this is the difference. This is the key difference. So, Getting back to that question of, okay, so is there a contradiction? Which one is correct? It's not about which one is correct. It's that there are human beings, every single human being besides Moses will, if they complete themselves, if they make themselves as perfect as they can be, they will say God does not want sacrifices. And what does that mean? That means that is their understanding from their perspective, from their understanding to the max, to the fullest, that is the truth. That is the truth. And I'm going to, you know, that is their truth, I'm going to say. But again, it doesn't mean that it's just because they decided that. Truly, a perfected human being, other than Moses, has that truth. That is true that a perfected human being's knowledge, his knowledge is subjective knowledge. That's what he has. That's what knowledge means for him. The fact that there's the thing in and of itself is completely irrelevant, at least vis a vis God, and he has no need to think about that. But then once upon a time, there was a superhuman, a superman by the name of Moses, who got past that. And basically, what he did then, he he took us to another world, in a sense. He took us beyond the prophetic world. And then, anyone who follows Moses, as students of Moses, no one is rising to the level of Moses, as the Bible makes clear. But we're his students, so we accept that there's something more than everything the prophets say. But me and you and everyone else can only be a prophet. So if we were to flesh out what we really know We know that sacrifices are, are, don't make sense. We also trust that there was a person greater than us, like a different form of intelligence for whom sacrifices within that, and within that world, sacrifices are very important. We know further that he is our teacher and we can be his students and we can follow in that path. So as students of Moses, we follow in this kind of higher level worship. But as prophets, which is the most that any of us can be, we will work out the prophetic message that the only thing that's important is knowledge of God and emulating God.
0: Uh, that's really, I mean, it's fascinating because, I mean, on the one hand, the prophet's message of doing mishpah, of doing justice and doing chesed and doing kindness, our mitzvot, are service, mosaic service unto themselves. So when the the prophets come along and command us to, you know, don't focus so much on doing korbanot, don't focus so much on doing offerings, but rather do mishpat, do justice, do chesed, um, and and therefore through that know Hashem, are they not just reaffirming what was once a Mosaic command? Why is that, why is the Mosaic command of um, doing justice any different from the Mosaic command of following, um, you know, sacrifices or any other mitzvah?
1: So your question is that when the prophets do say something that has echoes in, in the Mosaic commands, is that how is that different? Is that your question?
0: Right, exactly.
1: Well, the difference is as follows. If you would study the prophets and you had, let's say, a a, a situation with um with a, a worker or a business contract, and you would look at the prophets for guidance, what you would learn from them is that you should be just and you should be fair and kind. And then you would go for a nice long walk and consider how to apply justice and kindness in this specific circumstance. If you were following Mosaic law as you should, then you would look in the Shulchan Aruch, and the four books of law, and you would see codes and details and one detail after another and find you know splitting here as of specifics of each case. That's the nature of law as law. So even the even those laws of the Torah that, that are about justice are very detailed and very and they have a different quality, a legalese kind of quality that, that um, the prophetic dictums or teachings don't have.
0: Right. So the the, prophet, the point is the prophetic laws are more, um, not just general, but more, um, we, we can understand them in a more, let, let's say it this way, we can understand it in a natural law. We can understand it in a way where someone outside of our religion would understand it as well. When we hear the prophets tell us to be just and kind, it's not necessarily in a Jewish way of being just, um, i.e. through Choshe Mishpat, through Shulchan through following Jewish laws just in a general way. All right, right. That, that makes sense. Thank you. But I'm still just thinking, I think this is quite a, no- I think you've got to appreciate, it. it's a massive, massively novel understanding for me, and it's, it's just fascinating. So I, w- I want to just try and flesh it out a bit more. Um, so so if the message changed with the prophets, um I'm still slightly at odds to understand. Surely we should just be focusing on their message. I understand that there's another reality there, which is, you know, we're students of Moses. So there is this other reality we want to connect to. But where do the prophets say, for, do the prophets also tell us to stick to Moses's message? Do they just, do they say to us, you know, stick to Moses's message, but we're also telling you also another message, which we need you need to do as
1: well. Or are they coming to sort of annul their previous message? So no, they're not coming to annul anything. The key point to think about here, the way I think about it is that, you know, people tend to read the prophets as as giving, let's say, prescriptive statements. Okay, do this, do that. And my point that I'm making is that we have to read the prophets as more as a a human being who's finding his perfection, what perfection means for himself. For the prophet to t- to remind us to keep the law is just not what his job is. It's not what he's doing. Now, that being said, you will find places in the prophets where they say, keep the law. Zichu Torah at Moshe Avdi Malachi says, remember the law of of Moshe. And you can find other verses in the prophets here and there where they exhort the people to keep the law in general. So you could probably find that too. But I don't think that's the point because I don't see it as the prophets mission to give us a full, a very full picture of exactly what they want us to do. I see their mission as to express to us what their hasaga, what their understanding, what they're able to get perceive of God. And this is what they, and this is what they see. And I I sometimes feel like people have like these false expectations for the prophets. They want the prophets to cover, you know, okay, because you read the prophets and you're worried, hey, wait, am I not supposed to bring the, i not supposed to bring the offerings and don't, you want Isaiah to tell you, bring the offerings. Like that's not his job. And Moses told you to bring the offerings. Like, of course you're going to bring the offerings. Isaiah as Isaiah is the one who's going to give you a picture of why offerings make no sense because that's what he can do. That's what his perfection is. And I, I think we're just having this wrong hope that like he's supposed to acknowledge that, of course, I want you to bring it. But I do believe that, yes, Isaiah walked into the temple and said, explain to everyone why this makes no sense and stop symbolically sacrificing yourself because you are people who should be proud of what you are and your knowledge of God, etc., etc." And then he went and he brought the sacrifice <laughs> and he took the sheep and he slid its neck because he said, you know, I am a student of Moses. I'm a follower of Moses because you have to remember It's a very interesting student-teacher relationship, master relationship we have with Moses who no one could ever be like because if the Bible says no one could ever be like Moses and yet we are a student, it's a very different than any other student-master-student relationship because usually the student hopes to one day become like the teacher, (laughs) okay? So this is a very different kind of thing. If the Bible says there's never going to be anyone like Moses, that means that and yet we're following him, okay? And I think it's instructive if you think about it, like imagine a, a imagine a superior form of intelligence would appear on earth and tell us that there's some other co- deeper intelligence, a way of understanding reality, which we will never get to. Okay. But for some reason, we believe him, whatever, for whatever reason we believe Moses. And he tells us, look, there's this whole other kind of intelligence. And based on that intelligence, it follows X, Y, and Z. And then he disappears. And you know, it's very useful. It's very important for us to uh, acknowledge what we learned from him, even though it doesn't fit into anything we know. It's a very, it, we're living a sort of a contradiction. That's why the, it has, sort of has to be a contradiction to the prophets, because if they wouldn't if they were to make it a contradiction, they wouldn't be being honest. It truly is a contradiction. On the one hand, we will work out, says, say the prophets, we will understand why, why sacrifices don't make any sense. That's all they have to say about sacrifices. The act of bringing the sacrifices, of course they'll do that, but they cannot explain that. They have nothing to say about that. It's so, useful. Maybe. It's powerful to do it because there was once something higher than that. There was once – and our connection to Moses is like a superior form of intelligence, like a different human or not human, maybe something – an alien who, who, who came once and, and, and showed us that there's something more. And by the fact – by the very fact that he once appeared and taught us that, we forever have a connection to that. You know, what's the end game, and how does the, how does the Torah – the Torah's message, Moses' message of not being able to see God and the prophet's message of being able to see God, do they ever merge that will have to be for another conversation because I think there's more. There's, there's, there's a the next level here. Right. Where things actually come together.
0: Right. Right. I mean, I just, this is really opening up lots of doors. I mean, another point to make would be um, does, where does this put reasons for commandments? I don't think we've had on the podcast yet, but um, discussions on reasons for commandments, but a major just to tell the listeners a major topic in medieval Jewish philosophy and in Jewish philosophy in general is looking at the reasons for commandments. Robert Burton mentioned it a bit before. Um, Where does that leave the reasons for commandments? If the whole point of service is really connecting to an unknowable God, is there any need? Is there any point of looking for for reasons um, at all in the Mosaic laws,
1: as it were, and the only laws? Is there any point in that? So, in my opinion, there's not. Meaning, in the Mosaic law, in its extreme form, there's there's absolutely no point in looking for reasons. However, it's very clear that large parts of the Mosaic law um, are reasonable, okay? So then what that tells us, and this is really getting into a little bit of a different avenue here, so I don't want to think we should pursue this much, but that even the Mosaic law is connects and dabbles, let's say, in, in this kind of natural law or, or a reasonable law. Where that happened, how that happened, where that happened within the five books of Moses and why, I think we'll, we'll leave that. But the what, the mosaic that I'm presenting, and that's why I think the sacrifices stand for that, because the sacrifices are that area of the law which is completely beyond reason, and it's just about worship. So, yeah, the answer to your question about the tamiyamitzvah, the reasons for mitzvahs, from my perspective, it's yes and no. I I believe that um, commandments as commandments of mosaic commandments, the less reasonable, the more you're getting to it. You know, and I think it's very important. Like in a practical example of that, we mentioned the prohibition against. Um, I think we mentioned before the prohibition against stealing. So the, the Moses in the, in the Torah says not to steal. Um, as we said, the prophets will be, would be very supportive of that idea of not stealing. But if a person were to fulfill that law by being an honest guy, just a good, honest person, he might in fact be, be transgressing the law in the Mosaic sense. Because as we mentioned earlier, the Mosaic law of not stealing is very detailed. And um, the legalistic slant of it is, uh, to me, is the point. And sometimes people, you know, this is a, just a practical point here. Sometimes people feel like, oh, come on, don't don't give me all the details of the law. You know, I'm a good guy. I'm, I'm honest. And I'm not going to rip anyone off. And that's how I fulfill the Torah. And to me, that's fulfilling the prophets. That's not fulfilling the Mosaic law. So even where there is this overlap between the Mosaic law and, and, and the prophets, idealism, if you want to fulfill the law as law, you have to think about it um, as as a legal system that's sort of being push to put upon you, like it or not, and whether you understand it or not. So that's really, that's
0: really, really fascinating. And um, I think that opens up so many points of discussion and so much for discuss. But obviously, we've run out of time now. Um, I just want to tell our listeners that Rabbi Burton um, runs a brilliant, I, I mean, fantastic podcast on various areas in Jewish philosophy, and they it is a it's 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 just yourself on most of the podcasts and um his podcast on jewish sources on general jewish sources really is just phenomenal he goes through almost every topic um in to give you a very good background to major topics in jewish philosophy and that's called the great sources of rabbi Rabbi burton and i highly recommend looking that up I, i mean i would go as far as saying is that um if you don't listen to Rabbi Bertrand's pod, podcast you might miss some of the really really important elements of, of Jewish philosophy definitely understood from a, a different perspective and I really highly recommend them um and there are there is more on this topic so if you look at I will try and put the links is that I'll put the links in the um podcast itself in this podcast uh-huh. I'll put the links to those two um I've listened to both those podcasts but I, I actually think it was far more um there's far more to discuss, which you discussed in those episodes as well. Um, and maybe yeah. we'll have, have to have more, more on those, on those topics as well. So thank you, Rabbi Burton, for, for this discussion. It was really fascinating. I, I will, any questions that we get, I will pass on to you because I imagine people might be um, uh, thinking, you know, this change of perspective between the, the Torah, between the five books of Moses and the Bible as a whole, the, the prophets really is um, fascinating. So thank you, Rabbi Burton, for your time.
1: That, that was really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much, Benjamin, for having me. It's a great conversation. I agree with you. I find that this this particular topic is sort of a seminal idea that opens up so much, and it solves to me it solves a lot of problems much more than we discussed even. And I definitely welcome any questions, and involvement. And uh, again, Benjamin, thank you so much. It was great to be here.